It's episode 28 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Steve Garshinsky, and with me is J.P. Breen. Ryan is on vacation this week, so uh, everybody who tunes in for him will just have to wait a week before he returns. Uh, are you disappointed, J.P., that we don't get to speak with Ryan this week? I am a little bit excited now that we've kind of let the cat out of the bag that Ryan is gone this week on vacation. I'm a little excited to find out if we get some kind of disappointment story that's akin to the solar eclipse story about how enraged he was. Well, he goes to see his uh, Grateful Dead musical tonight, I think. so. Fantastic. Uh, so we're hoping that like somehow he misses a taxi, somehow... It- it could be he, something like that, or he's just disappointed in the performance because I think it's a very muscular like Jerry Garcia in this play, and we all know that wasn't the case. <laughs> Tremendous. Well, it's either that or like he shows up with his tickets. It turns out they're like scalp tickets, and he can't he can't get in. That seem that that sounds totally legit. I I would completely believe that would happen. So. Uh, we will just have to wait to next week, um, but I think he has posted a couple photos online if you want to see his adventures as they uh, uh, go along. So um, <laughs> you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on iTunes. We want listeners' uh, questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that in our Milwaukee's uh, tailgate Twitter bio. And finally, if you, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit uh, patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Our ball and glove patrons receive a monthly minor league extra podcast. And if you subscribe now, you'll uh, be able to get that when it comes out uh, next month. I'm not sure if you, I'm not sure exactly how it works. If you subscribe after the month, um, the first of the month, I think you might miss whenever we release that one that month. Do you know? I'm not exactly sure, but if somebody has, there have been a couple of people that have um, become patrons since the the actual release of the first minor league podcast. So if you can get in, get in touch with us and let us know if you actually had access to the back ones, that'd help us. Yeah, a we're lot, not so we can make sure that we're letting everybody know, you know, legit. Yeah, we're not sure if you can like retroactively get them. Um, so yeah, the the sooner you uh, sign up, the sooner you'll get those when they come out. So. Uh, anyways, Milwaukee's Tailgate is sponsored in part by Sound Devices, a premier manufacturer of audio production gear, and they're located right here in Wisconsin. Sound Devices gear is used worldwide and is found on the set of Oscar-winning films and popular TV shows. And if you're looking to create a professional-sounding podcast, check out the MixPre 3 and MixPre 6. For more information, visit sounddevices.com. Okay, so we finally had some movement again uh, this weekend. Um, Eric Hosmer signs with the Padres. It's an eight-year deal, uh, $144 million. And he has an opt-out after five seasons. So, JP, when you saw this, did you think uh, this is the kind of deal that people were expecting for Hosmer going into the offseason? I don't think anybody was expecting Hosmer to get eight, eight years. But it, the, the opt-out is what makes this deal really interesting. And we had heard that it was going to be a race between the Padres and the Royals of some sort. I think a lot of people are still scratching their heads about about the Padres, but I think it relates to kind of market forces that we've been that we've been discussing the last couple of weeks in terms of one of the ways that teams can actively take advantage of the kind of free agent market that exists right now is being able to leverage their ability to spend money um, which is what the Padres are doing so I I actually 
think that this deal is a, a quality deal for the Padres. Um, I know a lot of people, including Keith Law and whatnot, have been quite critical of it. Um, but I, I don't know what your opinion of, is of it, but I actually think it's a really creative use of funds for the Padres. Yeah, I mean, really, once I saw it, it broke down with the $20 million for, for the first five seasons, $13 million for the final three seasons, that's per season value. It really seemed like he just signed a five-year contract, and if things go terribly wrong, then he can just kind of keep playing for the Padres. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it just seemed kind of like he signed a five, like a legit five-year deal, and then he's got the three years. If like, I don't know, I guess Eric Hosmer isn't performing as he expected to. Ultimately, I know some people have been concerned about the opt-out at the end and saying it it actually doesn't make sense for the the Padres. I. I fundamentally disagree with that. I think if you look at what the Padres are doing, they're functionally getting a five-year deal at about $20 million per. And then if things go well, then Hosmer goes out and gets another deal somewhere else. Or maybe the Padres you know, spend a little bit more money, though that's unlikely. It's just it becomes a five-year deal in which the Padres get quality production and then he moves on. Yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing if Hosmer performs that well that he can opt out. No, and I think a lot of people are saying it actually makes it so the Padres have no upside in this deal because if he does perform well, then they're going to opt out of the quality team-friendly deal that exists after the opt-out for the Padres. But that doesn't make any sense because, A, without those opt-out team-friendly, without the the three-year team-friendly contract, per se, after the opt-out, Hosmer doesn't sign the first five years in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't, you don't get those first five years of quality production if the opt-out doesn't exist. So you can't be upset about losing something that only exists to get him to be there for the first five years. And if he does actually leave after five years, then he doesn't, he's not going to be on your payroll in his age, you know, 35, 36 and 37 seasons. And that's also, that might be a little bit high. I think it's 30, 30, 33 through 35. 33 and anyway like anybody that is would be celebrating you know the fact that the team would be losing a team friendly contract would also not be wanting the Padres to acquire a first baseman in his mid to late 30s anyway so i don't understand necessarily the the qualms about this deal i i understand it's this whole idea that the Padres aren't competing now so why are you locking money in but they're per, they're expecting to compete in maybe 2019 at the earliest, but 2020, 2021, and Hosmer will still be there, and he'll still be 29, 30 years old. Um, and they've got the money now. They have the money in the budget now to be able to pay for this deal. It doesn't necessarily make any sense for me that they shouldn't use it because they should be buying a Hosmer-like player in two years, but they're buying him two years too early. So I guess it's a waste of money. I don't, I don't understand the argument against the Hosmer deal other than this outdated notion that you have to only buy players for when they're good. Well, um, and I or like, you can only buy players when like you are ready to compete now. Yeah. And I think it's a little silly when you consider, um, I mean, planning five seasons out is a pretty long time. So like, Thinking yeah. like, oh, what's going to happen in those last, you know, three seasons is like, well, you know, at that point, you're going to just deal with it when it happens. So I, I don't think, you know, as long as the first five years work out for you, that's kind of all you can really ask for, especially when that's the biggest chunk of the money that you're spending on them. 
Absolutely. And then there's a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that if he doesn't perform well, then he is going to be on the hook for the $39 million over the last three years. But that's a risk that you're going to have to take in any long-term deal. If you don't have an, if you don't have an opt-out, then the, first of all, those $13 million per year are probably going to be higher in the first place. Um, it's going to not, he's not going to settle for $13 million because for him, that's a backstop as if he doesn't perform well rather than just seeing it as something he has to you know, compromise with if he does perform well. So it, it wouldn't be $13 million per year for the last three. And it would have been a longer deal anyway. So, well, and I mean, what kind of player would sign for three, you know, three years for thirteen million per year in five seasons? That's not going to be like right. a huge war player. Absolutely, and that's going to be after the CBA too. So, so, who even knows what the baseball economy looks like at that point? I would imagine thirteen million dollars a year is going to be pretty affordable at that time. So, uh, okay. We don't, imagine. we don't want to spend too much time on Hosmer because, uh, a deal that probably piqued the interest of more Brewers fans was, uh, Jake Odorizzi, uh, was traded to the twins for shortstop prospect, uh, Jermaine Palacios, my Palacios, Palacios. Um, so I, I know a lot of people online were, um, I think, disappointed that the Brewers weren't in on that, considering that the cost didn't seem to be too high. Uh, Palacios is not on any of the Twins' um, top 10 lists. I know BP had him just outside uh, their top 10. So uh, what are your thoughts on the deal uh, when you initially heard it? Um, I thought that that was a very disappointing return for the race. Uh, Palacios, best case scenario in my mind, unless something really takes a step forward with his bat, is maybe a utility infielder. If you really, if you really dream, um, it's not a great piece. He's outside of like the top five shortstop prospects, even in the organization as a whole. I I think the BP ranking. It's important to realize that those like just missed guys are not necessarily number 11 through number 15 in the organization, but they're just guys who are interesting more generally. And depending on who you talk to, like there are some people that still don't really believe in Palacios more generally. So ultimately it's Jake Odorizzi being a contract dump is functionally what it is. I mean, maybe the twins or maybe the race see something a little bit more in Palacios than the twins do. I think that's possible. Um, I've obviously never seen Palacios, and it's not somebody a lot of people have been talking about more generally. But even in when his bat was producing much more than people were expecting uh, in the 2017 season, there were still a lot of question marks on it. Um, I know BP has talked about the fact that his his defense is really good, but if you look at some of the the scouting reports from earlier in the summer, even on fan graphs and stuff with long and hanging and whatnot, there are some scouts that do not think his defensive range is that big and he's going to rely on quality defensive uh, positioning. And they're not even sure he can be a shortstop long-term. So it's not something that I think I, and I, and I take your point in terms of why Brewers fans are interested in it. Cause Palacios is not a piece that is going to turn anybody's heads. Yeah. Um, I mean, now order is he has two seasons left uh, under team control. He's making a little over 6 million this season. Um, so he has one more year in arbitration after this. Um, and uh, last season, he had a 446 ERA, or no, a 430? 
414. 414, sorry. His uh, DRA was 470 in 143 innings. So Pakoda's not really a fan of Odorizzi, especially this season. They have him as a 0.6 warp pitcher. Um, you know, and it looks like his peripherals, they expect more of a fall off from what he's done the past couple of seasons. Absolutely. And it's something to the effect of like he had a 414 ERA last year and he was relying on a 227 batting average on balls in play. So it's something in which even the peripherals last year had taken a massive step backwards. And in that way, I understand why not only is Pakoda down on him, but some people have been suggesting that we should have never expected Odorizzi to go for much because he was actually quite poor last year. Um, but I don't necessarily agree with that too much. You're going to, I understand the limitations to somebody like Odorizzi, but you're going to, in order for him to be that bad, you're going to have to expect his home run rate to stay at a career high. And you're going to have to expect the fact that his walk rate is going to be higher than it had been for the two or three seasons prior. Um, And I'm not necessarily sure that's safe to say there's a good argument for saying that his uh, command actually got so much worse last year because he started to throw his cutter a lot more in his fastball. He was, he was throwing under 50%, but then again, he did that in 2015 as well and was actually able to, throw strikes with it so to me there's no argument that's convincing to say that the command he showed last year is fundamentally what we should expect going forward um though i do not think that he is anything more than maybe a back-end starter uh mid-rotation starter if he has a really quality season in terms of his peripherals but even then i mean he's you know mostly thrown about 170 ish innings he hasn't gone over 187 in a season and he had 33 starts in 2016 and he only threw 187 innings so I mean he's not a guy that necessarily just goes out there and chews up innings absolutely but part of that is because of the Rays have been a kind of on the forefront of using their bullpen more aggressively than other people okay right trying to limit the amount of times that their pitchers can go through the rotation Um, but I think it's I think you're right to show that he hasn't been as he throws a lot of pitches right like so he's not necessarily been as durable as one would it one would like any pitcher coming to the Brewers to be, and I think that that's that's actually shown in the fact that uh, Adam McAlvey was talking to David Stearns earlier today on on Sunday um, about Odorizzi, and and Stearns gave what I thought was a very honest answer, where he doesn't necessarily give honest answers all that much. I don't feel, and he said basically Odorizzi wasn't enough of an upgrade or viewed as an upgrade to what they already have internally. And they're only going to move for an outside piece if they think it's a market upgrade. And they did not feel that Odorizzi uh, fit that bill just, you know, for the vast majority of reasons that you were talking about. Okay, so that that kind of answers, I think, one of the questions we had uh, from at Beer the Deer on Twitter. He asked, considering the cost if the Brewers should have pushed for Odorizzi, um, even if it just meant, you know, he was he was depth for the rotation. So Stearns kind of answered that today and said, no, he didn't really make the rotation better, so he'd just be another guy slotting in. They're what they consider uh, sliding into the rotation with the guys they have. Absolutely, and I actually think that one of the biggest indictments of what the Brewers think of Odorizzi more generally is the fact that they were willing to bring in somebody like 
Wade Miley on a minor league deal that actually does have some pretty good incentives for him um, in terms of making the major league deal or making the major league rotation or bullpen and either making plenty of appearances or pitching uh, a good amount of innings where he can make, I think, upwards of five million. Um, And the fact that they were much more willing to go with somebody like Wade Miley on a minor league deal than bring in somebody like Odorizzi, I think, says quite a bit in terms of either volatility of low-end pitching, like kind of four or five starters, if they think that, you know, you can, all of those guys are kind of the same and you just need to try to catch lightning in a bottle. Um, and getting somebody on a minor league deal is way better than, than acquiring somebody like Odorizzi and making sure that he has to be on the major league roster. You know, there's an argument there. But, I mean, it's not that they're not looking for depth like Beer the Deer is talking about, right? Because they brought in Miley. Yeah, well, and again, you know, I think we the theme this offseason has been if you can do it just by writing a check, it's not a bad thing to write, you know, pay money and keep the talent you have in your farm system. Instead of flipping, I mean, if you can do it, if you look at two guys, it's a similar situation. You know, if they feel like Miley and Odorizzi aren't that far apart, you can just, you know, write a check for one and you'd have to give up something in prospects for the other. I mean, yeah, you can just pay the money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that with, and and it's not necessarily something that's a question I don't believe when I was looking over it, but that's something we talked about in the past too. Like, is the fact that J.D. Martinez is still out there and you can potentially just write a check for J- J.D. Martinez rather than trade for Domingo Santana. And now Corey Dickerson actually was just DFA'd by the Rays as well. Do you want to go and pay, pay prospects or major league pitching for somebody like Domingo Santana when you can go out and get Corey Dickerson for free? Yeah. And, and I think that's become more of a reality in, in the game right now is, you know, it, teams don't feel tied into how they have to acquire players. Right. Although apparently we still think that uh, signing Eric Hosmer was a terrible <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. again, people are complain- neither, neither here nor there. People complain that like no deals have been made this off season. And then when somebody finally gets an eight year deal, it's like, Oh, it's a terrible deal. Well, it's like, you know, if that's a consensus that these long deals, long-term deals are terrible and that's all the players want and the front offices don't want to give them out. Yeah. There's going to be a stalemate for a long time on this stuff. And I think we're just Absolutely. seeing that play out. Absolutely. And that's why the, the solution to this and everybody keeps making this into kind of some straw man argument about how everybody, you know, like myself, who's been saying that there are some major issues here that we just want free agents to go get paid some irresponsible amount of money. That's not the case. If teams are understanding where the value lies in terms of, of players and where the vast majority of your production comes, the way you distribute the money to the players has to match that. And right now it is not doing that. It is not being paid to the to the most valuable assets and the people that are producing the vast majority of the wins. And those are younger players. And right now that those are the people that are having their uh, their their salaries or their, you know, their ability to enter the free agents market like that is being artificially deflated by the CBA and the owners. Um, And so. Yeah, if that's going to be the situation right now where teams don't want to pay those long term deals and that's what free agents want, then if there's this big stalemate, you've got to figure out a different way to distribute the money. And you've got to do it in a way that the teams value the players. Um, it used to be that teams wanted those free agent players and the, the the sure things, and now it's being pushed into an earlier time. So those players should be rewarded with the money. Yeah, so I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that works out for Milwaukee since – 
you know, I think it's been quite a while. We're going on, you know, 20 years that Milwaukee's got to build through the farm system and keep the costs low. And you're going to constantly kind of cycle through guys as they reach free agency and they go get paid. Um, yeah. If those young guys start getting paid more money, uh, I, I think that whole dynamic's going to completely change. You know, and we're going to, if you want to see David Stearns make some money, I, I think if there's a major shift there, that's when, you know, GMs are really going to have to get smart. Absolutely. And I know that I'm going to bring up soccer here. So you're going to, so, you know, be prepared. Make the point quick. But if you go to, you know, English soccer where there's no kind of artificial deflation of money in terms of where you go, so many players, so many teams and the biggest teams are giving out the most money to younger players who are producing at a high level. That's where it's all going. And you see the, the teams that are in the Premier League or in the championship that are having lower payrolls and have to figure out how to do it. Those are the people that are signing the veterans at lower at lower deals, right? And if you do see the CBA change in which that happens, the Brewers might be a team that has a few core young players, but then goes and gets a lot of, you know, like veteran talent that can come in that's going to be on a one or two year deal for $10 million or something like that. You know, you, you're going to go out and get the, Oh goodness. I don't even like you, you're going to go and get the Lance Lynn's of the, and that's maybe not exciting. Um, and I get that. And I get that young, that young talent is what you want to do when you want to have a youth system and you want to have a minor league system and all of those things. But if the money does get pushed to the younger players and that's where it rightfully should go, in my opinion, based on production, um, yeah, there's going to be a different way of building. If you're a small market organization, I think that you're exactly right. I don't know. Are, are older players going to be able to adjust to the fact that they might be the guys getting low, low, uh, dollar values a uh, limited number of years you know coming up when when stuff gets renegotiated i have a hard time seeing know. you know a lot of those guys still wield a lot of the power in the players association so i have a hard time seeing it just completely shifting what we're talking no, about it's it's not going to happen in this next cba no it would have to be it, it would have to be extremely gradual like they went from three years of arbitration to four years of arbitration or they went to you know five years of team control or something like that to allow players to hit free agency a year it wouldn't just be like abolishing the team control um for young players or something like that i think you're absolutely right because then you have the situation where you even have a like a group of players that were like, hold on. Now you just like artificially took my money when I was younger. And now you're saying that I'm not going to make any money because now all of that's going to go to the new younger players. And now I'm just like, like I'm screwed twice. Uh, so yeah, you're right. That's not going to, I can't see that happening, but I do think that there can be a gradual shift. And I do. And I am wondering if you'll actually see CB, the new CBA deals are lower, like they won't do five or six year CBAs anymore. It might just be like two year CBAs um, and make it much shorter to see if they can adjust these things uh, more readily. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll move on. We have a Patreon question from PB Brew Crew. Uh, Truth or social media myth? The relationship between two GMs has a significant impact on trade negotiations. To point to a specific example, I've seen discussions of a potential Milwaukee Cleveland trade. Uh, listed with David Stearns and Mike Chernoff, uh, both young I Ivy League guys. So that's a big point that people keep making. Um, more broadly, people talk about two front offices lining up well or referencing past trades with particular team as evidence. 
that another is more likely in the future. So um, how much do relationships between front offices matter? Because again, we saw the Rays just make a trade with the Twins and you say the Brewers should be in on that. You know, yeah, yeah. It, it's not as simple as like, you know, somebody puts a, a an ad up on Craigslist and everybody answers, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I don't know. What is, what's your opinion on it? Well, I mean, I, I know watching like the Doug Melvin years, he was constantly making deals with the Rangers um, or some of the other teams. He had two or three oh, teams. Good. Did he trade with Boston? Boston a couple of times, so the Rangers a bunch. The Rangers were the big one, and I think that was an example. Like you could see, okay, there was a working relationship between yeah. you know those two organizations, and that's you know why deals got made between them. So I, yeah, I think sometimes we undervalue that fact when we see a deal go through and think, well, hey, our team should have been on that, and it's like, well, that discussion isn't happening as readily as as you know I think we expect sometimes. Yeah, I don't necessarily. I think that's a good point. Um, I don't know enough about this. I do know that there are pro. I I would think just logically there are relation like relationships do matter. I do know there are teams that refuse to that really have a hard time working together. Um, I know that there are a couple of teams that just will not work together right now. Like I don't think that that's going to be a long term thing, um, but. I think that relationships can break potential trades. Um, I, but I don't know necessarily how much relationships do matter in terms of getting trades done. I think that logically it makes sense, right? Like there are guys that you're going to have done deals with in the past that you feel like are more forthright with you, right? Like that they are, that they're not trying to screw you over and that they are more truthful, that they are more open. Um, and exactly like you said, you don't just put, it's not like they have, have an internal message board for major league baseball and they just say, well, so-and-so is available. You know, it's like your fantasy team where you've got a trade block where you can click a few buttons and say, these players are available and everyone emails you like GMs go out and, you know, increasingly they text each other, but I imagine that they still do things via email and phone call as well. But a lot of these things are via text now. Um, and I would imagine that there are people that you go to right away, but I also think it's probably a I think it's probably a sense that Stearns knows what types of players he wants and which types of organizations fit well with the types of returns that he wants for players. Um, and I think he's going to target players and target uh, specific players in return and target organizations that he feels like might be good fits. Um, but I think it's a good question. I don't, and, and frankly, you know, as much as kind of that's a rambling answer, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do some of these organizations just feel like they have a better uh, grasp on, you know, like the minor league system for the Twins versus the Brewers or something like that? Yeah. Yes, they do. And that's something in which if you're an organization and you need to be able to not only just marshal your, your team well, but be able to spend your kind of scouting budgets well. When the Brewers had a terrible minor league system a few years back, um, nobody went to go see the Brewers and because it wasn't really worth your time unless they were playing somebody that was really great. Do you really want to go and send one of your scouts to go sit on one Brewers player at A-ball for five days and see nobody other than that one player? 
Probably not. It doesn't necessarily make sense for your your team to do that. Um, Which is something to point out as well. You said sit on them for five days. When they go scout these guys, yeah, they don't go see. It's not like you just pick a game to go see a guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have to do it multiple times, um, and you will start to see. And that's why it's really difficult because I know as fans we go and see a game, and you say so and so played really well or so and so looked terrible, and you make a snap judgment on that. And that's bad scouting um, and organizations know that. So yeah, they will go sit on a guy for multiple, multiple times. And they, they d- and you need to be aware of what you're doing. Um, I mean, even in terms of like the baseball prospectus scouting team, like if, if a team notoriously doesn't have any prospects, there are prospects that'll slip under the radar because nobody goes to see them. Um, it's the same thing when we talk about the MLB draft and like cold weather teams have guys that slip under the radar all the time because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to go and and travel, you know, like it's the the whole issue with the the Wisconsin Badgers and recruiting Wisconsin. Do you really want to go and have somebody from Alabama, you know, like the University of Alabama come up and go see one guy in Wisconsin and then drive 3 hours to go see somebody else when you can go to Florida and see I don't know, 12 guys in an hour? Yeah, one, one like, game <laughs> features plenty of guys to scout. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting, but yeah, there's a lot of time is a big commitment to just scout one or two guys. So yeah, they kind of have to get a better idea of, you know, who these organizations are and how to basically send their guys out to scout them. So yeah, it's, it's not this, it's not this thing where I think, you know, every team knows every other team's top 30 prospects back and forth and they're comfortable with it. It's a hard, it's a lot of guys. It's a hard thing to scout. It is. And you know, it's also a situation too. Like I, I know a lot of teams probably wouldn't admit it, but there are a lot of scouts between teams that also share scouting reports and ideas about players too. I mean, a lot of these scouts are friends. They've worked with each other in the past. They share ideas. Um, obviously you don't share a lot of like your really internal stuff, but they talk about what they think about players all the time. Yeah. So, uh, another Patreon question, Darren Jones asked Travis Shaw struggled down the stretch over the past two seasons. Obviously he dealt with some serious family issues last season, but fatigue was generally cited as a primary reason for a second half decline with reports that he is in the best shape of his life entering 2018. Are you a believer that he will regain and maintain last year's first half performance or should the best shape of his life talk elicit more of an eye roll than anything else? Well, it is funny because obviously it's a podcast. Nobody can see us. As soon as, as soon as you read the best shape of our lives, I think both of us did an eye roll. <laughs> well, exactly. Immediately. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's become a joke, you know, the best shape guys in the best shape of his life. But I mean, obviously they're working hard and they are, you know, legitimately trying to do that. Um, and it, it's just kind of also a, a crutch for writers when you have to figure something out to write about in the off season. So I don't necessarily, you know, hold that against a player basically proclaiming it as no. the only thing, you know, absolutely. No, we did see an interview with Joey Votto today and he said the only thing he accomplished in the off season was getting fatter. And then he went through his physical and actually found out that was true. He got fatter. So <laughs> <laughs> it happens to the best of us when we hit 30. So <laughs> well, I think it's it's a good question, right? Because if you look at what he did in the second half last year, he hit 242, 326, 442. Um, that's not know, a that terrible OPS player. Is, no, but the vast majority of that was actually in July. In August, his OPS was under 700, and in September and October, his OPS was 726. So he did get markedly worse as it went on. Um, 
I mean, I don't know. I, I, what are you expecting from Travis Shaw, I guess? Are you expecting kind of what we saw over the whole season kind of cumulatively? Or are you expecting what we saw in the first half? I mean, I think we have to adjust our expectations a little bit. Travis Shaw um, was probably, you know, hitting what his 70th or 80th percentile as far as what, you know, he would have been projected to do, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he well out hit what people would have expected. So, I mean, he hit uh, 273, 349, 513 um, last season. I mean, yeah, if he was closer to, you know, 263, you know, 35 and what mid 40s or 440s for slugging. That wouldn't be terrible. I think it would be perfectly legitimate. You know, he'd be a good player um, and basically follow up a career season with, you know, just a very good season. Yeah. And it's, it's worth noting a couple of things uh, as well. I think that Number one, if you look at the numbers that you were able to just give, right, and you actually like in Fangraphs they do the the runs the weighted runs created where 100 is uh, league average and then anything above it is better than league average. So he had a 119 RWC plus last year, which meant he was 19 percent better offensively than a league average player. 2015 with the Red Sox over about 300 plate appearances, he had a 118. Uh, WRC plus as well. So it's about the same as what he was able to do when he broke in in 2015 as well. It's 2016 is really the outlier at this point. So it is worth noting that, but I will say the other thing to note is the vast majority of the damage that came after in August and September was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of bad. It was a lot of batting average on balls and play. It just tanked. And part of that could be he he wasn't really hitting the ball all that well. But, I mean, if you're looking at the fact that here's a – I mean, not to do the John Madden thing, but, like, here's a guy. Here's a guy <laughs> – like, he's, he's a guy who is about a 310 career uh, BABIP. And in August and September, he was down near – like, combined down near about 270, 275. And that's not necessarily something that we should expect. And – in March, he actually his BABIP was about 270 again, and he hit 256, 299, 533. So he hit for a little bit more power. In but, March or April? Okay. Sorry, I was going to say. Sorry. I know this no, year. Fan, I, I know this year we're starting March plus April thing, right? So, I know. Like, I know this year we're starting in March for a couple days, but yeah. Yeah. No, I got excited about baseball. Um, <laughs> hoping it started a little bit earlier. No, yeah. So March, uh, so April last year, but you know, in Fangraphs it's the March sure. April. Split. No, no, I get it. I'm just giving you a hard time. And uh, no, it's allowed. <laughs> and um, but it's. I think the one thing to keep in mind is he was still producing defensively, uh, and it's he's always provided value defensively at third base. That's something that is always going to be in his locker, even if his bat kind of regresses a little bit from what we saw la at the beginning of last year. But I think in general, over the course of 162 games, I understand the need to look at splits, but there are study after study that have shown second half stats do not match up with what is going to happen in the next year. For fantasy players, that's always important to look as, as well. So many articles and so many things are written about who had a great second half and how is that going to roll into next year. Every year, there are, are studies that are shown that that's not predictive. Um, so 
keep that in mind. It's always better to go with the overall 162 games. Um, and over the 162 games, Travis Shaw was still about the three win player last year. Um, and I would say I would be comfortable saying, I think he's a two, two to three win player again next year. I don't, that's, I don't know if he hits 31 homers again, because I don't necessarily know if he's going to be, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to be as actually, he's, he's going to be as productive again against lefties as he was. Um, but I think against right-handers, I think he can be, have an OPS between 850 and three and 900. Um, and that with kind of defense that he has, that's at least a two win player. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that, that 2015 season in Boston, he hit 270, uh, 327, 487. That would be, yeah. I, I don't think anybody should be disappointed if Travis Shaw does that for a full season this year. Absolutely. But the one thing that makes it interesting is the only reason that looks worse than, than this season is the fact that his walk rate has increased every single year he's been in the big leagues, right? Oh, sure. Seven, 7.3 to 8.1, and last year it was 9.9. So if he hits 270 again, y- yes. then, but you, his you on-base hope, percentage will be higher. Yeah, you would hope he'd be close to that 350 on-base that he had this past season. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, you know, if he's hopefully just, you know, taking – not swinging his – not swinging at as many poor pitches and hitting good pitches harder. I mean, that slugging is going to also go up as well. So hopefully, you know, again, I think he could repeat that. Like I said, if there's a bit of regression, I think that's perfectly acceptable. You know, we could have seen a career year from a guy who was 27 years old. Right. Which is totally legit. And a guy that was like deemed to maybe not even be the best, the best player coming back in that, that Thornburg deal. I mean, everybody was so excited about Dubon. And Travis Shaw was just kind of like, oh, this guy who was going to play third base because we had a hole in the, the big leagues, and he and he crushed it. Yeah, if Travis Shaw wouldn't have had the season he had last year, I would legitimately think it was just Thornburg for Dubon. Like because yeah. Travis Shaw was so good, we we talk about Travis Shaw now. But if he hadn't been yeah. that good, like I would think it was a one for one deal because it was all about Dubon coming back from uh, Boston. Absolutely. And, and Josh Pennington's actually turned out to be really good as well. I mean, better than expected. I'm not sure. saying he's like going to be a front of the rotation guy, but um, I mean, he's cracking probably a good bet to crack top 30 lists in general, um, which in this organization is n- not, you know, not the easiest thing to prospect. Yeah. So, um, okay. Uh, we have a question from Anthony Pollard. Would you accept a three year, 81 million deal for, for Jake Arietta, and I will say that yes, I will accept eighty-one million dollars personally I was gonna say, I was of gonna Jake Arietta's money. If he wants to give me eighty-one million dollars, I will take it. Um, but as far as say, do I get the do I get this eighty-one million dollars, and then Jake Arietta goes to pitch because I'm in. Yes, I'm all for deals like that. So we'll but, even we'll even split it, you and me. Yeah, and Ryan's not here, so he doesn't get any of it. No, forget that. He went on vacation. Yep. So, uh, but three-year, $81 million deal. Um, do you think the Brewers would do that? I, I don't. Um, I think that's, that's too much money going into uh, a pitcher with the kind of question marks that Arietta has. I understand the deal. I understand the, the desire to do a shorter deal for a higher um, average value, in ter- or like an a- the average uh, um, Average annual contract value. value. Christ, yeah, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. So basically, I understand the the desire to do that, but I just don't think that necessarily makes sense with Arietta. Yeah, there seems the market is just slow on Arietta because people are scared away. Yeah. He's just he's the one. He's basically been the one that I think has made everyone nervous. There there have been questions. It, I mean, because he had a hamstring issue last year. He's had a decrease, you know, his stuff has decreased. He's lost uh, two or three miles an hour on his fastball. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I think everybody is just kind of looking at a pitcher who's getting older and they don't want to pay for a season that they're not going to get. They're, they don't want to pay for that, was it 2015 season? Well, and I will say, though, with the velocity decline and the question marks that uh, surround Arietta, I will say in the second half last year, he was quite good. Oh, no, so, I think you could still get it. I think you can still get a pitcher who is productive. You can still get yes. a very good pitcher, but I think yes. everybody's scared off of the risk, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that he's going to be getting more money per year than you Darvish. I just don't, I don't see that happening. No. Well, yeah, that's such a weird deal though. Darvish got six seasons. And I mean, at this point, I think it'd be really surprising if Arietta gets, I mean, is he going to get more than four? I'd be shocked. I mean, so the best he's looking at, the very best he's looking at, which we'd be surprised at right now, would be four for 100. Even that'd be a lot. And even that would be surprising. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to put a number on there in terms of what I think, but yeah, I'd be shocked if he got four for 100. Or even four for 80. Yeah, it's it's... It, it's going to be a really interesting market, and I think that uh, there also could be a shot that Arietta doesn't sign before opening day. Okay. I was going to say he's going to be like uh, Kyle Loesch, but Loesch obviously signed, what, late? Was it late in camp? He had a couple, yeah. he had yeah. a couple weeks left when he signed with the Brewers. Absolutely, and it's just there are, there are players right now that are weighing the fact that if the issue right now is, the, is that not enough teams are willing to enter discussions and negotiations, and that is not allowing them to hit the mark that they would like to value their own labor at. They're saying, well, I'm going to wait until July and when, in which you know somebody might need a pitcher. And, or even May, where it's May, you have a bad injury, teams aren't willing to sell yet because they haven't decided whether or not they're going to be buyers or sellers, but you've got free agents out there that are willing to sign. In May, that might be an opportunity that you can actually do that thing where everybody says, well, if you actually wanted to get ahead in the market, you would actually start trying to look for a trade option now. But you know, the issue is that teams don't want to sell that early. But if instead you've got an option to go spend some money, that might look pretty good too. Is there a difference between what's going on with Arietta right now and what's going on with J.D. Martinez? I mean, because Arietta, like we said, you know, there's some injury concern. But Martinez, it just seems like his value of what he is or what his agents are valuing what he is versus what teams are is just completely. Um, yeah, know, I think Ari- too far Arietta, Arietta, a lot of people are scared. Uh, JD Martinez, only the Red Sox want him. Is that really it? It's just the Red Sox. Nobody. I mean, nobody I, and but I, the Red Sox who are willing to go more than three years for JD Martinez because nobody wants to be on the back end of that contract. Yeah, and I mean, I'm saying that. That's all I've seen is the Red Sox are the only team that have really been connected if, to him if at all. JD Mar- if J.D. Martinez said, I will take a two-year deal, suddenly his market would get very hot. Yeah. What is it about Martinez that people don't want to go longer? 
I think it's the fact that I, everything is so reliant on his bat and, and his defense is so bad that, that basically they're saying your best case scenario if you're an AL team is like two or three years down, the, like three years down the road, you're moving him to DH and then his bat's got to be special to be a, you know, a 20 to $25 million DH. Nobody pays for DHs anymore. We're so far past that era. No, I mean, basically, what, the, the Rays just went out and got C.J. Cron, who could, I mean, C.J. Cron's not very good, but, I mean, they just, they just DA'd, uh, DFA'd uh, like Corey, Corey Dickerson. Dickerson, who could go out and be a competent DH for somebody. Yeah. Yeah, well, and again, you know, teams just don't want guys who the only thing they can do is DH because flexibility is such a big part of the value of players nowadays. Yeah, and we've seen that with the Brewers. I mean, defensive versatility is absolutely something that Stearns and the Brewers value highly. Yeah, so, uh, okay, uh, next Twitter question from BrewCrewTSSC. If we accept that the package for Yelich was an obje- wasn't an objective overpay, and he doesn't think so, is it fair to question whether it was an overpay for this market, given that the Pirates... Uh, the Rays, et cetera, have given up major league level talent for underwhelming packages? Um, no, because I think that every single person that somebody like Brew Crew are mentioning here with the Pirates and somebody like Garrett Cole, Rays with uh, Odorizzi, those were first and foremost decisions that were either motivated, I think mainly motivated by money, uh, and Yelich wasn't. I mean, Yelich was the first, basically the first guy, the first guy at which the Marlins said we don't have to trade him. And well, beside Yelich, uh, is anybody close to a five-year deal that was traded? No, I, I mean I think I everybody's think been like maybe two years of control left. Uh, two years of control left, and with pretty big question marks about them. I mean, even people are questioning whether or not Garrett Cole is really a number two. Um, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. I think Garrett, the the deal on on Garrett Cole was light, but that was the Pirates basically making it clear that they were trading no matter what. Um, so no, I don't think it. I don't think it is fair to question whether or not the Brewers needed to overpay for Yellett because they didn't have to, and it's plain and simple. I know that that's like a really unsatisfying answer, but the reason that the Brewers had to pay up for Yellett is the exact same reason you haven't seen Chris Archer go. Because the Rays do not feel they need to trade Chris Archer. Um, and well, again, f- four years of a guy, right? Four years for Archer? Four, four or five years, yeah. So, I mean, those are the guys that we're seeing. You know, there's a lot of negotiations and large uh, requests for talent to be included in those packages. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if you do look at, you know, the Odorizzi deal, one of the big motivations is they've got Brent Honeywell coming up through the system that they want to give innings to. Um, so not only is it they wanted to get rid of the money, they wanted to open up the rotation spot for one of their prize pitchers coming up through the system. Um, and it is a situation with the Pirates. I think they made it very clear that they wanted to cut payroll. Um, I don't see much reason otherwise that McCutcheon was allowed to go for what he was allowed to go for, and Cole was allowed to go for that. Um, and Did they the Marlins... Cut- did the Pirates cut bait a little too quick? Do you think they had one more run in them before they really needed to unload? Or did they need to unload now if they wanted to make it a quicker rebuild? I, I've i been pretty – I think I've been pretty consistent. At, and, and I know that via Twitter, like a lot of people disagree with me. I think the Pirates weren't as bad as they were – as people think last year 
or this year. I think the Pirates. I think the, I think the Pirates in some ways have more interesting talent than the Brewers do in some places. This is obviously before the Yelich and Kane deal, but I mean, if you have an if you have an outfield of McCutcheon, Marte, and Polanco, and you've got Meadows coming through the system still. And then you've got Josh Bell at first base. You've still got Josh Harrison out there. You've got Cervelli, who's a really quality uh, catcher, especially defensively. And then really your only question marks are at shortstop and second base. You've got a lockdown closer. You've got Cole up there in, in your starting rotation. You've got Nova, who's a really quality you know, mid-rotation starter of some sort. Um, I just – I just, and you've got Jamison Talion as well. Um They've got pieces that really looked good. So, yeah, I mean, with the amount of talent that they had that's both young and has potential upside to still put together quality seasons, and if they can put together all of those seasons at the same time or just rely on the growth of their young pitching and their young hitting, if the Brewers could put together their season, I, I had a hard time thinking that the, the Pirates were in a position in which they couldn't do the same thing. So... Yeah, I was really surprised to see the Pirates just kind of throw everything, throw in the towel so aggressively. Um, and I can't imagine that money was that tight that they had to do it. How quickly do you think the Tigers, or the Tigers, the Pirates, how quickly do you think the Pirates can uh, bounce back? Because, I mean, they, they have talent in their farm system, you know, so they, they aren't, like, completely bare. No, but it does become a situation in which... I don't know. They need to hit. They need to hit on some players, right? They need to. They need Tyler Glass now to come back and actually be able to throw strikes. They need Austin Meadows to to prove that last year was kind of an aberration and he can go forward. Um, they need some of their pieces to step up more than they did. Like it wouldn't have been as big of a deal about Austin Meadows prior to trading McCutcheon. It wouldn't have been as big of a deal about Glass now if it if they didn't trade uh, Garrett Cole. But now there's so much more pressure on those guys to come in to come in true. Um, if those if that doesn't happen, I don't actually feel all that confident that they can turn around and compete as quickly as people think. Yeah, it's hard to get another Andrew McCutcheon. That's for sure. It is, and I mean, their best case scenario, if if those guys don't really take steps forward, their best case scenario is that Polanco or Marte kind of become much better players and become cornerstone players, and they can flip them actually really early and get uh, you know a, a Yelich type deal in return. Yeah, and again, I think we've seen this off season that you can get deals like that, but nothing's a, a guarantee at this point. You know, as far as planning on like let's. Let's acquire somebody or, you know, let's plan on after five seasons being able to flip a guy for talent. That's just not something you can plan on happening anymore. Yeah, I yeah, it's it's a tough situation. And I mean, it. I said it a couple of uh, like a couple of months. Well, I don't even know if it was a couple of months ago, but like when the Marlins were starting to make so many of their deals and the Pirates were making they, their deals. Like the Brewers, Brewers fans should be thankful that they ha- started their rebuild two years ago instead of right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been a lot uh, steeper hill to climb otherwise. So, um, hey, uh, we got a question from Charlie Robleski. He asks, uh, what is the best baseball website between Fangraphs, Baseball Prospectus, Baseball Reference, Brooks, etc.? Do you have a preference as far as which website you like to use? Uh, Which one that I, I, well, Baseball Prospectus. 
Is that your go-to for pretty much everything you look up, or do you have something specific that you go to Baseball Prospectus for first? Oh, so what? So what? Okay, I get. I guess I see what you're saying. Like, which one do I use for like stats, or which one do I just think is the best like baseball website? Considering he had like Baseball Reference on there, I'm using it as what's the best one to go to for stats. Got it. Um, it depends. I mean, it honestly depends on what I look for. I think. In terms of, I use Brooks a lot more for pitching than I do for hitting. Um, I like Fangraphs because it allows me to see the splits much more quickly. If I want to break something down in terms of, of splits or get like broad ranges on players in terms of uh, production over a certain amount of months, I will absolutely use Baseball Reference instead. Um, if I want to use more advanced statistics, I'll use Baseball Prospectus and Brooks. If I want to start comparing players over multiple seasons or kind of everything in positions and look at league averages, I'll use fan graphs. Uh, but if I want to read analysis on baseball um, and I, if I want to look at stuff on prospects, I'll, I'll look at baseball prospectus all day before I look at anything else. Yeah. I I've, I've been going to baseball prospectus first, I think mostly for, for uh, pitching stats uh, with DRA um, especially yeah. being the thing to kind of go to as a reference. Um, I always like fan graphs, you know, as far as the layout between both looking for advanced stats and just your general, um, you know, slash lines and stuff like that. And then baseball reference, you know, is generally just the go to for, you know, the lightest like, hey, I want to just quickly search, get the, you know, player page to pop up and be able to check some info. I mean, since they've normalized, I don't know, is that the right word as far as their, their reference points for calculating war? There doesn't seem mm. to be as much of an issue as far as going from site to site to site and figuring out, you know, which one is most accurate when you're looking up statistics like that. And that's been, what, three or four years at least? Well, I think that, well, there still is a problem with wins above replacement. Well, I'm because, not saying there's no problems. And I, I don't think baseball well, prospectus, it, baseball prospectus isn't a part of that same baseline that fan graphs and baseball reference are correct no but they're still using different inputs like all three of those are still using different inputs sure but there isn't there isn't the variance that there used to be no but there there still is something more like for fan graphs for pitching in particular that's going to absolutely not be wins above replacement in terms of what happened on on the field that's going to be what happened to kind of underlying and what should have happened exactly where, which is why i go to baseball perspectives for yeah. pitching primarily yeah absolutely i agree with that um but i still think that i agree with you that the layout for fan graphs is is especially when it comes to like looking by position looking at leaderboards over the course of a year looking multiple years uh i you can't beat fan graphs for that. I mean, I know baseball prospectus is working on a redesign for the stats, not just for the, the homepage which they actually had a chance to roll out. So hopefully they'll have a chance to make those a little bit more user friendly because I actually would like to be able to use uh Pocota a little bit more because I think that their percentile projections are really useful and I'd like to be able to take advantage of those a little bit more than I do. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is basically everybody has their options. Um, so you can yeah. pick whatever one you, you, you think is easiest to get to, whatever one you think is worth uh, the most. Because, I mean, for player pages, for baseball prospectus, you have to pay for those. That's subscription. You do. So, um, uh, yeah. But I will, I will say if you're looking for prospect analysis, though, and I'm not just saying it because, you know, I've, I've written both at Fangraphs and, and Baseball Prospectus um, that – I, I don't think you'll find any better analysis for prospects than you will at baseball prospectus. 
Um, and I don't particularly think it's close, though I do I do think Fangraphs is coming. Obviously, with Kylie and Eric there, they do a really nice job. But the amount of depth at baseball's prospectus in terms of their uh, contacts, in terms of how many people they go out and see personally, and the amount of write-ups that they do consistently across the board, um, and their process behind the scenes, I don't think – I think baseball prospectus is, is top-notch. Um, and, and you see that in terms of how many baseball prospectus folks are now working in organizations, uh, even in just scouting sides. I mean, they've had two or three people each year for the last probably five years go to go to teams. Well, for the, the scouting publications, uh, Baseball Prospectus, Baseball America, MLB Pipeline, would you have preferences there? Yeah, Baseball Prospectus. It's still Baseball. Because, I mean, you know, Baseball America, that's the old old war horse um, as far as... Yeah, that's... That's pretty much uh, uh, for the draft. I think they're the best by a lot. Um, but in terms of like major league systems, I I would put Fangraphs, Baseball Prospectus, and MLB Pipeline over Baseball America. Okay, so there you go. If you're but looking for your that's a, but stuff, I, well. I was going to say, but that's to be fair to them though. That's because they put so much of their in, own internal effort into the draft and college baseball because and and high school. Because they know that's where their their strength is. That's their market, um, and that's where their magazine has always been so strong. And so I can't say enough for the MLB draft for people that get into that. Baseball America is worth every penny. They do such a great job for it. But if you're looking for the Brewers minor league system, you know there are a lot of other options that I think are more worth your time than Baseball America. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of, uh, hedged a little bit on that, um, you know, because he asked what, what's our, our favorite, but there's something about each of these websites you can find that they do better than someone else. So it, kind of using all of them in tandem is probably the best way to get the most information. I think that's that way about life too. There, right? you, there you go. It's, it's, it's a life lesson as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, hey, did you want to give the uh, say the thank yous for uh, this yeah? Week? Let's give a shout out to some of the Patreon folks. We got uh, Chad Ferris. Uh, I believe it's Ferris. If I pronounce that incorrectly, you know, yell at me on Twitter. Um, Matthew Ferenz and Jeremy Moen. Uh, thanks again. It's a great opportunity to hear from everybody. I mean, we've been getting tons of questions via Patreon. Uh, we've been getting a lot of shout outs, even people that are have been kind of asking questions via direct message on Twitter. Um, I can't promise that I'll answer everything, but I'm always happy to engage in conversation. So don't be afraid to do that as well. If you're listening and uh, you know, if, as long as you don't like ask me to help you with your fantasy trades every single time, um, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that. But yeah, so shout out to Chad, Matthew, Jeremy. Um, if you go by Matt, shout out to Matt as well. Uh, but thanks to everybody again. Yeah. Um, and remember, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Uh, patrons at the ball and glove level uh, will receive our monthly minor league extra podcast. And um, you also get your questions moved to the top of the queue. So I tr- we try to get as many uh, patron questions in first. And then obviously we still want to answer um, other questions that come in from Twitter, that come into our uh, Gmail account and stuff like that. So um, remember, you can always submit questions that way, uh, milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page as well. So we'll try to get through as many of those questions as possible. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and we're in the Google Play Store. 
You can leave reviews and help people find the podcast. So uh, thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. <laughs>